that everything that comes to us is from His hand to make us more like Christ. It takes away a lot of the anxiety that goes along with life, doesn't it? What life may throw at you if you're a believer comes through the Lord's hands to make us more like His Son. So we're grateful for that. Thank you for that reminder. And for Jason's scripture, bringing under him all things the church under Christ. That's really what we're doing now. We, as we open the New Testament, we want to see what the Lord has to say about His church and come under Him as the head. And so that's our prayer today to do that. It's good to be back with you as we study the Word of God. And welcome today. If you're a guest here this morning, don't, uh, don't leave without letting us know that you were here. You can use that QR code right there on the back of the seat. If we can minister to you in some way, be a blessing to you, let us know how we can do that. It'd be our joy to do that. Open your Bibles, if you would, as that's what we do now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 8. Look there, if you would. We have been a continuing study through the pastoral epistles, and as we hit chapter 2, we began to look at guidelines for public worship. We looked at um, men who prayed, and we looked at the complementary nature of men and women in the church, and then we moved to chapter 3, and we began in the first seven verses looking at the qualifications for those who lead as an elder, and now we've moved today, now as our new section as we pick up in verse 8 and go through verse 15. So look there with me if you would. Starts this way, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, beholding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate. Faithful in all things, verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and of their households, verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to, to, you, to, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, verse 15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Stop right there. Today, as I said, we start a new section beginning in verse 8. Paul addresses the official office of deacon. And just to get the context for this next section, there are probably a lot of things that you think about when you think about the word deacon. You may have grown up with that word representing authority in the church. You perhaps had the experience that they are the official leaders some churches, there is this general idea, perhaps where you've come from, that they are the elected representatives of the church body who serve as the constituents, and they bring the complaints and suggestions to the pastor. In some churches, they are the spiritual leaders of the church. Some churches, they're the ruling body. Perhaps that was your experience. In some churches, the pastor may be employed by and work for the deacons. Some churches, the title deacon is something people seek to attain because it comes with a certain badge of honor and respect in that community. In some churches, deacons are voted in, and they're in that position because they are wealthy or they're knowledgeable or they're a businessman or they're a big giver, and so they want to have a say in how things are done. Some churches, deacons are identified, particularly in the Catholic Church, as a sort of suborder to the priest, just a lower on the clerical order, if you will, underneath the priest. They carry out the duties the priest assign them maintaining facilities or administrating some task or whatever. In other churches, there are no deacons at all, and so they just seem to be ignoring the issue. I don't know what your background perhaps would be, but the scriptural word for deacon along with the office of deacon is a wonderful term, and 
uh, in the process of studying this passage and selected others, I think we'll be able to filter out of that word everything that doesn't belong there and define it the way the, the Word of God defines it so that you can understand what the Bible means when it talks about the responsibility of a deacon. Now, just to give you some background on that word, that's the very first word in verse 8, deacons in the plural. Uh, deacon is Greek noun diakonos. It's in New Testament, it's translated servant or attendant, one who ministers to and cares for others. It's translated over a hundred times that way, so it'd be impossible for us to look at every one. But I want to be connected to that context. The word's probably connected with uh, a, a discontinued verb, diakono, which is to hasten after or to chase after. The idea, of course, is to make sure something's done. But we can illustrate that a little bit, I think. Um, it, incur, it occurs in the New Testament of domestic servants in John chapter 2, verse 5 and 9. So when Jesus performed his first uh, miracle, he told the servants, that's our word deacon, uh, to take what he had made into the wine, into uh, the wine that he had made into the wedding feast. In Romans chapter thirteen, verse four, the word is used uh, for those who are in civil government. In fact, it says, "For it is a deacon of God to you for good." But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And it's a here is our word again servant or deacon of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So both sides, both the rewarding of good and, and the avenger of those who do, on those who do evil. And the civil government has used that word, a servant of those things. Jesus himself is a servant. In Romans chapter 15, verse 8, Paul says of Jesus, for I say that Christ has become, here's our word, servant to the house of Israel on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the Father. So when he came, he came to serve Israel and to show that the promises that had occurred before actually had come to pass. And, and this is a servant is implied here, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So he came and he fulfilled the promises of the fathers and then he came for Israel and then he came as a servant to show God's mercy to those who were not Jews. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that's our word, to give his life a ransom for many. Then we see in John 12, 26, the followers of Christ in relation to the Lord are servants. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. My servant will be also. If you name the name of Christ, you're considered a servant of Christ. And so you do what he says. The followers of Christ in relation to one another are servants to each other. In Matthew 20, 26, the verse right before the one we looked at just a moment ago, it's not this way among you. In other words, leaders, he said, those who rule do, uh, dominate you, but not like in Christianity. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be, here's our word, servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So the idea of this is a kingdom upside down. In the real world, those who have the position and authority lord it over those who are under them. In Christianity, those who want to be great are the ones who serve each other. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, same sense, uh, Paul says to the church in Galatia, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Here it is. But through love, here's our word, serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you really want to see and live in freedom, what are you going to do? You're going to serve one another. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, again, same sense, but here is its spiritual gifts. 
Peter says this, as each one has received a special gift, if you're born again, you've received spiritual gifting to serve. It says, employ it in serving, that's our word, one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you really want God to be pleased with what you're doing in the church, use your gift to serve the church. And then it refers to elders and pastors and apostles when they preach and teach as servants. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3, 5, you'll see a few illustrations this way. It says, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants, here's our word, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So they preached, people came to faith, and because uh, they were preaching, they were servants of those who were going to come to faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, give no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions, hardships, and distresses. So Paul says, as uh, he has ministered to the church and those who were with him ministered, they commended themselves as servants of God because they were in much endurance, affliction, hardship, and distress, and of course, and because they brought the word to them. In fact, that's the exact sense that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says to this young pastor, I'm going to give you a bunch of things, and he lists off a bunch of doctrine he wants the church to hear, and then in verse 6, he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be, here it is, a good servant of Christ Jesus. So he is faithfully teaching these things. He's a good servant, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. So the more that he centers on uh, doctrine and, and those kinds of things and, and, uh, and sound faith, those things are what point him out as a servant. Same idea, uh, speaking of pastor, teacher, overseer in 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, the Lord's bondservant, that's those who serve willingly underneath their master, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. But specifically in, in this official office of those who serve in the churches, we find it only uh, in the official office in Philippians 1.1, Romans 16.1, and of course right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 8 and 12. And perhaps, and we might look at this next week in Acts chapter 6, where the choosing of the seven there to serve the church and wait tables uh, was kind of a precursor to deacon. We don't see the word there, and we don't see a continuing office, so I don't think we can point to it as an official office. But we get the sense then of some of it, and we'll look at it next time. But as you can see, the word is generally translated servant or minister. And it finds its origin in the waiting of tables and providing for basic needs. And as we saw in Matthew 20, Jesus used the word to convey the understanding for human relationships, and that's how we are to love each other. We love each other by serving one another. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your deacon, must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, served, but to serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you can kind of see the word is there. And it has a, a very broad application, a very basic service. Later in Luke 22, verse 27, in the upper room in, in Jerusalem, the night Jesus was betrayed, and he washed the feet of his disciples, Jesus said, who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves, the one who deacons? It is, not, is it not the one who is at the table? but I'm among you who is one who serves. In other words, when you go to a dinner, the guy who sits at the head of the table, he's typically the boss, right? But Jesus said, listen, I'm serving you. This is an example. I'm washing your feet. I'm serving you uh, the Last Supper. And that helps us understand this office of deacon so much better. And it's a remarkable word, and it was used and defined to represent all types of humble service for the cause of the gospel and for the church. 
And there's certainly nothing officious. There's nothing self-conscious. There's nothing self-promoting or ruling in any of those words that we just looked at, which typically define most people's experience of deacons in the church. All the Lord's followers are to be humble servants. Everybody. We're going to see that some of these standards we're going to see uh, that are non-negotiable for deacons are those are the standards for the church too, just like they were for elders. And what's interesting, I think, is we just think about history and how this has all been uh, messed up. But uh, people dramatize the very act Jesus used to illustrate service, this foot washing. He was showing humble service, the most meek and lowly types of ministering to people, showing that he loved them. But the Catholic Church has made foot washing really a ceremonial act. And over the years, particularly starting as far back as 8694, foot washing was made obligatory throughout all the churches. The priests had to foot wash. So over the years, they, they postured humility, and they washed the feet of the poor and became a public performance by leaders of the church and the state. In fact, in 1530, Cardinal Wolseley washed, wiped, and kissed the feet of 59 poor men in Petersburg, and we have that record, so I'm sure it was super humble. English royals did this with a typical fare. In 1213, King John washed the feet of the poor, giving 13 pence to each of the 13 fortunate washees in an event that became known as Royal Monday. The entry some 400 years later in the chapel's royal register records that on Monday, Thursday, April 16, 1685, our gracious King James, yea, washed, wiped, kissed the feet of 52 poor men with wonderful humility. Oh, I'm sure. Now, the Catholic Church has changed that a little bit through the centuries and, and celebrates what they call Monday Thursday, where they administer Mass and they recite the Lord's commands, and they've dropped the foot washing. But believe it or not, Royal Monday is still a religious service in the Church of England, and it's held on Monday Thursday, the day before Good Friday. I'm just telling you this because this is coming up, and at the service, a British monarch or a royal official ceremonially distribute small silver coins known as Monday money as symbolic alms to elderly recipients as having served others. And the officials will wear towels as aprons, and the queen or the king will attend uh, with bouquets of herbs and flowers as the sovereigns did in the days of the plague to guard against the risk of infection. The next date is actually Thursday, April 6, 2023. So you can watch uh, King Charles humble himself and wash the feet of some people around him. And I illustrate that just to show that it's no more ridiculous than the things we started with at the very beginning of our, our message, the things that we imagine deacons are supposed to be doing. Because the original sense of those terms had to do with very humble types of service. It was under the radar. But the church has really messed that up, and any kind of service would be in mind. And that foot washing, of course, has been treated like a parody. And in some instances, the office of deacon has become the seat of power, aspiring to rule, which are all just opposite of everything that we understand about the word deacon. Now, it's interesting about this word um, where it talks about service, because any kind of service would be in mind here, as we saw. But what's unique about our text is that it's used in an official sense. So we could see hundreds of examples in the New Testament of the word deacon or minister. But here it's been transliterated by New Testament translators. And what's important about that um, is because in the sense of Paul's letter, he's obviously directing his comments to an official office as opposed to the general service that everyone does. And they do it also in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, as I said earlier, as, as um, 
Paul writes the letter with Timothy to the church of Philippi, he says, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, and what does he say? And deacons. So obviously, again, transliterated, not servants, because everyone's supposed to be a servant, but somebody who's in official, in official position. And so the service alluded to, and we looked at a lot of sampling, very broad. And then we get to these two places, and it's now referring to a group of chosen or select people. And we're going to look at this, but here's the first question. What do you think the primary qualification was in each of these people? Well, what do you think the thing that caught the attention of everyone was if they were going to be put in this spot? They were servants. It's just obvious, right? I mean, they had to be serving at a level that just, everybody just looked at them and just said, wow, that is, that's remarkable. In fact, in chapter 6, they said, they asked the church, look around, find people of good reputation, people who serve, people who have that type of, uh, of character that you can put in a spot temporarily to take care of the widows in need. And so it's an interesting thing that you, if you think about the primary qualification it wasn't that they were rich. It wasn't that they, were, they had good ideas, a good businessman, that they were a good organizer, that they had ideas and they think that, that they need to be impl- implemented in the church. None of those things were, would have been any, even on the radar for, for those who, were, who identified as this transliterated office of deacon. It had to be humble service. And in this official office, they are then the living examples market of what service looks like. Humble, gracious service. The type of service Jesus modeled on the night he was betrayed. That he went and washed the disciples' feet and served them a meal. That type of service. And it's a very basic, very foundational, biblical understanding of the New Testament office of deacon. And beloved, I would say, just as we're just beginning to get our feet wet here, that would filter out almost every example and experience you may have had, or perhaps supposed or thought to be true, about the office of deacon, doesn't it? That filters out almost everything we just got through saying, almost everyone's experience. And now here in this section, we're going to deal with the matter of the responsibility of deacons in the church. And I want you to understand, just like as we looked at those who, who, who lead the church as an elder, this is a very important section. And it's important to recognize that these people are deacons, not because they do all service or they do all the work, but because they're a model of the proper kind of service and attitude for everyone else. That's the people who are supposed to be in there. And a model of testimony and character and personal life, which we're going to see in a minute. So look back at verse 8. That's why uh, Paul starts this way, and he says, deacons likewise. In other words, just like the elders we just got through talking about, or in like manner, in the same way that they are evaluated, the elders are evaluated, you're going to evaluate the people who are going to serve as your servants, as your deacons. And although a deacon's function is distinct from that of an elder, it's not distinct from the fact that they're a model. So, in other words, one model of godliness. We're going to see the same thing as we move through uh, the, the qualifications of a deacon, just like we saw the qualifications of an elder. There's only one model of godliness. The elder or the deacon, it's a non-negotiable. It has to be true to serve in the office. But it's the model for everyone else. And we see that the qualifications are basically the same. They both look at a man's personal life. They both look at his character, his home life, his leadership skills, his capability in those things, his commitment to the service of the Lord in the church. And there's no lessening of the spiritual standard. They serve in a unique position in the church, so the standards are very similar. 
These are to be equally men. And so where the pastor, elder, under shepherd, overseer is to lead the church, uh, they have that standard. The standard they must live up to is the standard of godliness for everyone. And then right here, as we get to the deacon uh, in the church, uh, these are the standards that they have to live up to, but that passage means he's no less godly. And so they have a standard they have to live up to, and that is the standard for everyone else, likewise deacons. And they're responsible for modeling what it looks like to serve. Because otherwise, what happens is what happens a lot in churches is people say, well, he doesn't have his life together, so let's make him a deacon. Let's just stick him in there because he's got some good qualities and he, you know, he's got some good ideas and he wants to make some changes in the church and he's a good giver and whatever, so let's throw him in there. And see, none of that comes on the radar at all. Quite the contrary, the message of what a deacon is to be is the message of what you and I are to be. I don't think we can escape that over a hundred times in the New Testament. Talking about how to walk with the Lord has everything to do with serving one another. And that's a model for all of us. Now, let's look at the first two verses, if you will, and let's start to put together our principles from these verses on deacon leadership, just like we did in the first seven verses of this chapter. So look back at verse 8, if you would. Deacons, likewise, we have that, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let's stop right there. So here's the first one. Must be men of dignity. This is the adjective semnos. Befitting behavior, implying dignity or respect. It can be translated grave. It can be translated and is in the New Testament serious. But that gives way to an honorable life, worthy of respect. It's part of the root that we have for our English word seminal. So if somebody writes a a seminal article on some certain thing, that's the authority that everybody aspires to and thinks about. It's actually the same thing. A person has this stateliness about them. It creates that respect. It creates a model, and people look at it, and they recognize it. And it's not long-faced, and I've served with plenty of deacons who are long-faced. It's not humorless or stony-faced. It's not that haughty, unyielding. None of those things are in there. But it's also not a flippant person. It's not a silly person. It's not a vain person. Not a person who makes light of very serious things. They have to have respectability that people pick up on and recognize as remarkable. Someone can watch their life in the way that they selflessly serve and those habits strongly influence other people. So that's our first first qualification. To hold the office of deacon, you must be one who could be held as an example of seriousness in spiritual issues. So they're not consumed with themselves, and they're not consumed with the world, and they can't be consumed with other things besides kingdom things first and and give them the importance they deserve. It doesn't mean that they don't raise their family correctly. It doesn't mean that they aren't taking care of the things they have to take care of and a good testimony in the community. They have to do all those kinds of things. But when it comes to spiritual things and it comes to service in the church, this first thing is most important. They are serious and spiritual issues. And of course, just as with the standards for the elder, there's just one standard for the deacon in the pew. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, uh, Paul says to the church in Philippi, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is, here's our word, honorable, semnos, this is to everyone, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, then he goes on, whatever's right, pure, lovely, good repute, if there's anything excellent and anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. So what's the command? Who's it to? It's to the church, not just to the deacon. It's not just to the elder. It's to everyone. Everyone's supposed to 
Think about things that are honorable and be honorable. And then Paul says, the things you've learned, received, and heard, and seen to be in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I gave you that example. He said, this is the way we're supposed to act. So if you aspire to the office of deacon, you must model this character trait. And if you're a believer, it's an example of godliness that we see Paul give to the Philippian church. Now let's look at the next character trait. Look back at verse 8, if you would. Deacons, likewise, must be, here it is, men of dignity, we've got that, not double-tongued. May is not, and de logos, it's a compound adjective, D is two, and logos is words. So not saying two different things. And this is the only place where this word appears. And this trade and the next two all have not implied. This one actually has it, but you can see in the, in the language that it's implied in the next two. So in other words, you have this wonderful character trait at the beginning Simnos, worthy of honor, dignified, and people can look at that and say, I want to be like that. And then you have three in a row that have not before them. So these are things that are not to be the case. Now, what's a, double, what's a two-tongued person? What's somebody who has two words? That's just a person who says one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. And the idea here is integrity of speech. If you're going to serve as a deacon, you have to have integrity of speech. And when I think about all the trouble that has been caused in the church by people who say one thing to one person and something else entirely to someone else, it's obvious why that can't be the habit of a deacon. A lot of people do this, but a deacon is one who is an example of service, and he cannot. In fact, there isn't any service he can do, just to see how important this is, that will counteract the huge spiritual deficit that he's created by being someone with a double word. And we talked about the tongue last week quite extensively and how it's a deadly poison and how it's untamable and only the perfect man cannot ever uh, violate with his words. But the issue here is not you're a perfect man, but the issue here is, is there isn't any service he can do that's going to counteract the deficit that's created by gossip. And a lot of times those who serve in the church come to know very private matters. Those who are serving in this way as deacons, there's many times there's needs that they have to take care of. And they're dealing with things that people would like to keep private in their own lives. Because they're serious about serving and they're serious about meeting the needs and they're an example of that and they know the kinds of things that are part of the spiritual warfare that goes on in the church. And so our second category here to aspire to the office of deacon is to be the kind of people who know how to speak when you should speak and when not to speak and to speak with integrity whenever you do. I think that kind of sums up integrity of speech. There's always this high premium on verbal honesty and integrity among spiritual leaders to speak faithfully, to speak righteously and honestly and uprightly. And, and there are just so many passages that deal with the tongue. But you know, if you have honorable uh, person serving in the office of deacon, they're going to recognize that there's some needs in the church. What I love about honorable deacons, they are able to speak it with integrity and they'll recognize, hey, you know, there, I know there's a need here. Let's see, maybe see if we can meet this need, that kind of thing. And it doesn't have to be broadcast anywhere. See, this is a person who understands when they shouldn't speak about some things. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of passages that deal with the tongue. We've looked at some already. In just a few weeks, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3.11. And we see women here who are serving, and we're going to see that office here as it includes women. And Paul says, for them, I say the same thing. Women must be likewise be dignified. I love that. And then it says, uh, not malicious gossips, temperate, 
That's wineless, faithful in all things. And again, in 1 Timothy 5.13, as it relates to conduct in the church, Paul says that some women learn to be idle, and then they go around from house to house, not merely idle, market, but also, here it is, gossips and busybodies. And just to be clear, in case gossip has been wrongly classified as spiritual speech, talking about things that not proper to mention. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19 tells those on the receiving end how to deal with people like this. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. And that's how it always has to work. So if you're going to put an end to gossip and double, double tongue, then when somebody comes and says, I need to tell you something about, well, if it doesn't include you or them, then it has to stop right there, see, because you them after that. It can't be gossip. At some point, it has to come to an end. So it's the standard for everyone. But for the one who serves as a deacon, they can't be double-tongued. And for everyone else, James chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13 says, Speak and act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You have to be careful when you open your mouth. Because as soon as you begin to gossip and slander someone, that's showing a, a definite lack of mercy. And what's standing in right at the gate? Judgment. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. This is a great way to curb that habit if you find that this enters your speech on a regular basis, talking badly about someone. When you get ready to speak, make sure that what you're going to say can be construed as the utterances of the Lord. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving in the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, in your speech and in your service, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, the person in leadership then has to have great integrity of speech. Nothing is more devastating than to tell one person one thing and someone else the very opposite, and then for each of them to find out what you did. There's no upside for gossip, no matter what the reason is for doing it. Now, let's look at our next one. This is a non-negotiable for those who serve in the office of deacon. Let's look at our next one. That'll be our last one for today. Verse 8. Deacons. Likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, here it is, or addicted to much wine. Now, this addicted, prosecco, is um, present active participle. It's a compound verb, as were the other character traits that deal with the topic. Pros is unto or with, and echo is in need of or possession of. So, with a need to possess something, to adhere or cling to something. And what's that something? Alcohol. And so that just adds to what we've already looked at previously. The standard of godliness from verse 2 of chapter 3 was wineless. That's the word temperate. The standard of godliness from verse 3 is not in the way of wine or to be where it is, to linger there, that to be with others who drink alcohol or in a place where alcohol is served. So that, that has to do with your testimony. So not only are you wineless, but you can't be somewhere where people will think that you're not. And then now again, and so he continues to repeat it because you can see how much trouble it was even in the early church. He repeats it again in verse 8 as a testimony and as an example, there should be no desire to have or need alcohol. And what this does, I think, is appears to weed out those who may give it up unwillingly but still have a desire to do it. So what you want is somebody to be of a single mind about it. In other words, they may th he may have some qualifications or she may have some qualifications that could could put them in the office of deacon. And they may say, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I'll, I mean, I can give that up. So what's wrong with that is that it's not a commitment to holiness in a way that you see what the Word of God says, I'm going to put that on and this is the way I want to live. 
It's, I'm going to give it up, but it's unwilling. And we won't go back over the literally hundreds of passages that deal with negative results of alcohol and the warnings that go with it and the, and the lack of a one-to-one with first century alcohol use. We're going to see it mentioned again when we get to verse 11. And so I won't, ha- I won't go through all of that. But number three, for a deacon then, a qualification, he's to be the kind of a person, or she is, who does not allow the draw of drink to influence the life. And that's the standard for those in spiritual leadership. It's the standard from Proverbs 31.4 for leaders and all in authority that we saw, so it applies to everybody. It's the same qualification that's expressed here. The word means to hold near or to occupy yourself with it. And the current, present, active nature of the participle just means that this is to be his habitual practice. Not just something he's saying, well, I can give it up, but I, I really don't see anything wrong with it. It's the habitual practice. You've been convinced that this is the way it should be because this is what the Word of God says. And you're known as a person who's not occupied with it. That's the idea. Now, I, I know you can see this. Uh, this whole pattern of all these qualifications. Uh, they're all following the same types of principles. And it doesn't really matter in this sense whether it's the qualifications for one who aspires to the office of pastor or elder or overseer, or one who is the model of a server and desires to or is serving as a deacon in the church. Because they really all revolve around one category of truth. And in a sense, we we can simply uh, just boil everything down that's said in these passages as they qualify people for Christian service by recognizing that what the Lord is looking for is a heart that is right before Him. That's really what the Lord's looking for. He's not looking for legalism, and it's very hard to know that difference between the two. If you're on the outside and you see someone and they're acting a certain way, it's hard to know if that's the way the heart is or if that's just what they're doing so that you'll imagine that they're holy. It's very hard to know that. Because they can both look the same on the outside. But the issue is, 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 is this an issue of the heart? A conviction that you wish to serve the Lord in such a way that you're willing to come up under what the Word of God says and do it. Because you love Him. And you're expressing your desire and your love for Him in obedience. See, The qualifications for spiritual service are not so much what our talents might be. Or what we're able to do or what we're willing to do even. The qualifications as it relates to these offices and the guidelines for public worship are all about what we are. You don't see many things set out as they, you have to do this if you are an elder. You have to do this if you're a deacon. You don't see much of that because really the focus is on who is this person. They all have to do with spiritual life, much more so than talent or effort or willingness to do something. And they are an example of godliness for every believer. And so, when we ask the question, what kind of person is God looking for for spiritual leadership? I think it's easy enough to answer that question. You don't have to go back in the Word of God very far. And all the way through, it's interspersed. We can answer it over and over, and we did at the beginning of our study by simply going back and looking at the history of redemption. In fact, I was just uh, talking about this with one of my sons not too long ago, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Samuel is sent to anoint the next king. Now, you remember Saul. Saul was big and handsome, and he looked kingly and powerful, and everybody thought, this is the guy, and it wasn't the guy, right? I mean, Saul got himself in trouble almost immediately. Even before his ordination, he was already disobeying the Lord, but then right away afterwards. So Samuel's going to go to the sons of Jesse, and I love this because this really expresses, as you think about people who are going to serve in any position in the church, regardless of what it is, it, has, it comes back to the same thing. God says to Samuel, now remember, you know, and he's calling on Samuel's memory. Remember Saul, okay? 
Listen, when you choose, you're going to go to the sons of Jesse and they're going to parade in front of you. And when you choose, don't look at his face. Don't look at the height of his stature. In other words, what he can do because he's big or strong or you think he's got what it takes. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Isn't that great? When you walk in holiness before the Lord, nobody may know that, but the Lord knows that. That is just so awesome to know. The Lord looks not as men see, for the man looks at the outward appearance. So it can be legalism and nobody will know, but the Lord looks on the what? He looks on the heart. And that's a heart that willingly submits to the clear teaching of the word unto godliness. Not perfection, but godliness. And that's his innermost desire, to be pleasing to the Lord. And so that's where we're going. And, just, and I think I expressed it to you clear enough last week. There's no perfection here. Okay? And I told you where I struggle. And, and I didn't want you to think I was holding up some pious standard somehow that nobody else could reach. And somehow I don't have any troubles like you have. And I'm not tempted like you are. And all the things that I have to take care of are not the same as what you have to take care of. It's the same. And then I have to come up under this, these qualifications. And they're non-negotiable. And that if you see me and it appears that I'm not keeping them, you have an obligation to come and talk to me about that. And say, hey, it, it doesn't look like you're doing it. And it's the same with those who are in, or deacons and who serve faithfully in the most uh, perhaps mundane, base types of services that make sure the church functions and ministers to people. Listen, it's the same. There's no perfection there. It's just a desire to come up under the standards and to hold them as well as can be held as an example. And that's the issue. And we're going to close. We're out of time. You bow with me if you would as we uh, seek the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for the joy of being together. We thank you for your people who come and gather in your name and you're in the midst of them. We thank you that we could sing your praises and speak to you and tell things to you that are true and worship you in spirit and in truth. And not that we can have an emotional high, which certainly is part of it because we love you and that can be expressed in an emotion overwhelmingly, but because what we say about you is true and we desire to be holy and we're repenting and desire to walk in faithfulness before you. And so Father, thank you we can enter into song and we can pray and we can give. All those kinds of things the first century church was doing that we still do because we recognize you're the giver of all things. You provided everything for us and we return a token of that to show you that we recognize that. Our lives are yours, Father. We put them on the altar. Romans 12, 1 and 2 say it's our reasonable service of worship to submit our whole life to you. And as we think about these standards that have to be held by those who serve as elder or deacon, These are just the standards and the example that everyone is supposed to come up under. And I pray, Father, that we'll recognize that. That as we wrestle with these kinds of things and and we perhaps it it rubs us the wrong way and things that we want in our life and things that we've done before and how we've perhaps been taught, that we recognize um, it isn't the vain way of life handed down to us that's pleasing to you, but submitting to the one who came and died and was slain before the foundation of the world whose price is much, worth much more than gold or silver. It's when we call or called by your name, we wish to have a testimony that doesn't cause people to walk away from you, cause people to think less of the standard that you put up than they should because of what we allow. These are things that are so hard. I pray that you'll give us wisdom. Help us to be in your word each day, Father. Each day, starting, we might know your mind and read through your word each, each year that we might understand your thoughts and know your, the consistent way that you deal with people and what you expect. 
And Father, we think further out from ourselves as we think about um, our, the model for prayer that we see in First Timothy 2, that we pray for all men everywhere, for leaders and all who are in authority. So, Father, we think about those far from us. We think about those who lead nations. We think about those who, who are in charge, and I pray for, for them to come to faith. That is really our desire, for peace to reign, because peace is inside first. So, Father, in these places that are causing hardship for the church, because that's what it's all about. It's that you're not your will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation, and that we can dwell as a church in, in tranquility and peace, that we might do the things you want us to do. Missionaries around the world, here even in the U.S., where uh, difficult things have occurred and make it difficult for the church to function, I pray, Father, that you'll bring a reversal. And Father, we recognize even in the middle of those prayers that in some in a very real sense, what we have as leadership in the United States is really your judgment on us. The fact that we've denied you, that we've turned from you, and even in the church have lived such a poor testimony that where there's no clear standard and no clear testimony to the, uh, to the watching world. And so we've inherited really the wind. My Father, I pray by your mercy that you might uh, bring about repentance in those who are in leadership. They might not pass immoral laws and unfaithful things, but instead be brought into subjection to your word, where all can dwell in peace and tranquility, where all can uh, live in a, in a world where the church can be powerful and do what she's supposed to do. And we know you work through difficult things and you work through a persecuted church, and we're not opposed to that, Father, but we're just praying as you asked us to pray. And so, Father, as we get ready to exit, we think about our, our responsibilities before you to show you we love you by our obedience, but also to live in such a way that we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and then to go out and carry the Great Commission out to those who are in our circle. Help us never to forget that and be part, help that be part of our life as we think about the fabric of our own uh, salvation. Help us to be a good testimony to a watching world and then uh, be an actual presentation of the gospel. Give us opportunities to do that, we pray in the name of your Son, and all this is in his name and for his glory, and all God's people said, amen.